we can make it happen. Uh, the, the Farnums went downstairs. Oh, there they are. Oh, there's, there's, there's half of them. But I was going to tell a really cool story about them and how um, they have challenged me personally in being, um, in being unusually loving, just, just um, above and beyond in, in our kindness and care for people. When Nicole and I was, were engaged several years ago, we were getting married, uh, we, they, the church surprised us with an engagement party. We were, t- we were thoroughly surprised, had no idea. But there was part of our present at this engagement party was a uh, homemade uh, washer and dryer set made out of cardboard. It was fairly elaborate. And when I opened, I can't remember if it was the washer or the dryer, it was overflowing with cash. Uh, It was the best, best thing I've ever seen in a washer and dryer. Um, uh, Talk about laundering money, huh? Thank you. Thank you. Dad joke, it's official. No, but no. Um, and th- there's just ways that Lauren would always be considerate about our family, thinking about us. Uh, in all honesty, we bought clothes for Gideon because we wanted to. We really didn't have to. Lauren has provided Gideon with a wardrobe from age zero to age four. I am not over-exaggerating. Um, she's been extremely kind. So, Lauren, I want to say we will miss you. And um, we will miss John as well. If he was here, I would tell him. But we will miss him as well. Thank you guys so much for loving us. Amen. Amen. We'll continue to pray for you. And so, where we're coming from, Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. We've been in Mark for at least a couple Sundays. And so if you want to turn there with your Bibles or go follow along, we'll have it up on the screen for you. And for the past few Sundays, we've been speaking about the kingdom, right? Uh, the first Sunday that we were meeting here together, I preached a sermon about being born again or born from above. And how Jesus says, without being born from above, no one will see the kingdom of heaven. And then last week, we talked about opposition to Jesus' work, right? Opposition to the kingdom going forth. And I said, let us beware, right? Let us, let us consider, be, be, be thoughtful about the ways that we ourselves may be in opposition to Jesus and his kingdom. We talked about, one, how familiarity or our religiosity can birth complacency or even contempt, right, to Jesus and the kingdom. And secondly, we talked about how we could love our own brokenness, our own sin to the point where we don't receive or recognize Jesus, right? We love our own sin more than the, the comfort, the freedom that Jesus provides, Well, today we continue speaking about the kingdom, or Jesus continues speaking about the kingdom, and he's going to teach us about the nature of the kingdom through the use of parables. And parables are just powerful illustrations using very common, everyday things to teach very profound, very deep spiritual truths. And so he's going to talk to us about the kingdom from, we're going to look at particularly two parables, the parable of the growing seed and the parable of the mustard seed. And my prayer is that we receive, we understand the lessons that come from these parables, right? Jesus always wants us to hear a lesson, learn a lesson from the parables as the purpose of it. But secondly, I want us to, to learn some very practical, very clear ways that we can apply these parables to our lives. 
Okay, as a church, though, I know we all we talk, you know, in America, we're really big on like being alone, your, you know, individual things. I want us to consider, yes, how we do this individually, but as a church, as Redeemer, right, how do we apply what Jesus is saying to us through these um, through these parables? And this is important because hear this, brothers and sisters, Jesus is working on building his kingdom, right? He is ushering his kingdom in the here and now. And the primary way he's doing that is through his people, right? The church is the primary vehicle for bringing the kingdom of God into the hearts and the minds of people and into our broken world. And so it's important that we can understand fairly practically, very cl- fairly clearly, how we're bringing the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Now, we've talked at nauseum about what the kingdom of God is. Would anybody like to shout out what we mean when we say the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Amen, my brother right there. There he is. Amen. It's the reign and rule of God, right, that exists in our hearts, in this world, and which will find its full fulfillment in Jesus' return at the end of time. Okay? Amen. And so we're going to read... Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. We'll pray together, and then we'll jump in. I know some of you guys are, are really, really, um, you've noticed that I'm doing something for the first time. I've never done what I'm doing today for the first time. I'm wearing a t-shirt. I'm preaching in a t-shirt. All right? So it's an experiment. Maybe it caused you to take me less seriously. Maybe it causes you to to admire me more and I'm more endeared to you. I don't know. But I will find out by the end of this sermon how you guys have received my new fit. But I'll tell you, it just came about because when we were outside, it was just hot. Right? It was hot. And so I just couldn't wear suits anymore. So I dumbed it down. Dumbed it. That's not a good word. I just took it down a little bit in terms of what I wore. And then we came inside and I I, was wearing button-down shirts and stuff. And it was still hot. And we're just moving back and forth, and I'm getting soaking wet, both by sweat and water. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take it all the way down this Sunday. So that's just what what we're trying. How do you know? Thank you. God bless you for the the affirmation. I don't know if you could tell, but I was a little bit concerned. So, good. Good. What is the difference between a comedy special and preaching a sermon? I've yet to find out. So Mark chapter 4, verse 26, that that was a complete joke. Please just erase that from your memory. I probably shouldn't say that. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. And let's read. Beginning in verse 26, it says, He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like, he being Jesus. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows though he does not know how. And all by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full, the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, which with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. 
With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. And this is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me this morning, friends. My God, I thank you so much for all of your kindness towards us. I thank you for I thank you for laity. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to just have fun with my brothers and sisters here this morning. And I thank you that you are pleased to be present with us when we are meeting together, Lord Jesus. Actually, you promised that you would be. So I pray, as you've been with us in worship, thank you for your spirit. Lord, you would be present with us in this sermon that, O Lord, by your mercy and grace, you would grant me clarity of speech, clarity of communication of your very, very profound and valuable truth. And Lord God, you would grant each of us soft hearts, ears to hear your truth. So, Lord, as your word is preached, it would sink deep in our hearts as good seed and good soil, and you would reap a harvest 30, 60, and even 100 times that which was sown, O Lord God. Please add a blessing to the hearing of your word, and please add me grace and clarity and conviction and, and add your effectual power to accomplish what you set it forth to do. Be with our children as they continue to, to learn on their level outside, continue to water their hearts, soften their hearts, and we pray that in due time they would come to know you, the children that are in here as well. Lord, we just thank you so much for your mercy and your grace. All this we ask in Jesus' matchless and most holy name, Father. We thank you for asking, for hearing our prayer according to your will. Amen. And amen. Give me a second. My uh, phone is, my watch is going off here, but amen. And so in chapter 3, the chapter right before our chapter this morning, uh, we read that Jesus had been healing Right, casting out demons, delivering people, and all along he had been preaching the gospel, preach of the tr- preaching the truth of the gospel. And Mark tells us that Jesus had been doing this next to a lake. And so it jumps from there to what we talked about last week, Jesus being opposed by the scribes, the, spirit, the, the religious leaders, and then his family. And now when we come to our passage in Mark chapter 4, we read that Jesus has now gone back to that lake. And what he's done is he, they had a boat waiting for him. He got in the boat and he set out on the water. And, it said, and Mark tells us that he's done this because there's a huge crowd. There's such a large crowd that's come to see him, come to receive of him the healing and also to receive of him his teaching and his preaching that he goes out in the lake so that they won't kind of crowd him too much, so that he can be able to see them and speak to them. But there's also another reason why he does this, we believe. It's because the water has somewhat of, a, of an amplifying effect. Right, it's kind of a natural uh, microphone, if you will, that the farther he can get out in the water, the more his voice will carry out over the water so that the crowd could hear him. And so he's out in the water and he's teaching the crowd. And in verse 2, Mark tells us that Jesus taught them many things through parables. And so the idea is this, that Jesus taught a whole lot more parables, many more parables, than we actually have recorded here. And so Mark just chooses to give us a a few of them. And 
one of them or two of them being the parables we're going to talk about today. And so in verse 26, Jesus begins the parable of the growing seed by comparing the kingdom of God to the process of a farmer scattering seeds on the ground. Okay, he says the kingdom is like a man who goes out and scatters seed. Okay. And so here's the process that Jesus goes on to to describe. He says that the man goes out, he scatters seeds on the ground, and then he goes to sleep. He scattered seeds on the ground, and he goes about his life day and night, and the seed sprouts, it takes root, it grows, it bears fruit, and then he harvests it. And Jesus goes on to tell us that the man has no idea how this happens. And not only does he have no idea, but it actually happens without him doing anything. It happens independently of him. And now, when Jesus says, though, the man has no clue how this happens, he doesn't mean that the man has no idea that sowing and reaping is a thing. He just means that this man doesn't have any idea about the intricacies of, of seeds and, and the germination and the, the, the sunlight hitting and, you know, chlorophyll and all the other big words. I know you got it, John. John, if you want to know the exact process, ask John because he knows, he knows everything when it comes to that stuff. John is a very, very, he's a scientist. That's why I'm I'm picking at him. But what Jesus is saying is that he doesn't know all the intricacies that happen. He just knows that it happens. But what's more, he knows that he has nothing to do with it. If you've had children, you understand at least part of this process, right? Because at the beginning, something happens to have children. Am I the only one? Something happens to have children, but everything else that happens after that, we don't really, like, we don't know the process of how God miraculously makes an independent soul from such a simple, we don't know everything that goes into it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the nature of the kingdom is such that it happens independent of us. The nature of the kingdom happens in a mysterious way so that once the seeds of the kingdom are sown, it's a sure thing that the kingdom will come forth and the kingdom will flourish. And so that's that's the first the first parable. But the second parable compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. And when Jesus refers to the mustard seed as the smallest of all the seeds, how many of you guys have checked that to find that that is not actually true? Anybody? The mustard seed is not the smallest seed in existence. But what Jesus was doing here was he was using a very common Jewish expression or or common saying about the seed. And the idea in this Jewish custom was to just show that something was greater than its beginning. Using the size of the small mustard seed to say that something was greater than its beginning. And so the point of Jesus using the mustard seed was to show that the kingdom of God is greater in comparison, immensely much greater than its humble beginnings. The end of the kingdom will be much greater than its humble beginnings, just like the shrub or the, or the tree that grows of the mustard seed is incomparably or, I guess, comparably greater than its origins. And so these are the parables that Jesus 
tells us. And so these here are the three lessons of these parables. Okay, the first one coming from the first parable, second from the second parable, and the third one coming from just Jesus' use of parables altogether. And the first lesson is this. Jesus' kingdom goes forth and it cannot be stopped. That's the first, that's the first point, okay? The kingdom will indeed flourish. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter and the apostles by, 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 um, by them also being there, he says, And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And what we're witnessing when Jesus says this, what we're hearing from Jesus from the beginning of the church, what Jesus is telling us is this, is that he's going to build his kingdom, and not even hell itself will be able to stop it. And by implication, what Jesus is telling us, though, is that hell will indeed try to stop the kingdom. Right. I want us to think about this. Think about this. Christianity is the only that I know of is the only institution that began because people tried to stop it. When the Jews killed Jesus, they were essentially trying to stop Jesus and his resulting work of the kingdom. Right. That's what they were trying to do. Wildly enough, it was their attempt to stop Jesus by killing him that actually birthed the church itself. And so, today, the church continues to grow despite and because of opposition to the church. The more... People try to stop the church the more the kingdom of God goes forth and flourishes. And so here's the question. How can you stop something that grows the more you try to stop it? That's the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will continue to go forth and flourish because Jesus has promised that it will. Because Jesus has promised that nothing, not even the gates of hell themselves, not even hell itself, will be able to stop it. Right now, brothers and sisters, this is not, um, this is not secret. We all understand this. We are in a special time. Right? We're in a special time. Our bishop of our diocese, his name is uh, Bishop Todd Hunter, fantastic, fantastic man of God. He likes to say that we're in a new day. We're in a new day. And it's, particular, it's a particularly challenging new day in the church and particularly in America. Did, did anybody call? The, it sounds like they're in the back. We're in a particularly new day in our church here, here in America and just, just at large. But let's talk about America just a little bit, the Christian church in America just a little bit if that's okay. Right? Because right now, the church is facing attacks from all sides and even from within, even among our own numbers. I heard somebody say recently that the church seems to be crumbling from the inside. Right? You have Christian nationalism. You got racism. You got unhealthy traditionalism. All of these things are attacking the church and the kingdom of God from within. And unfortunately, what's happening, brothers and sisters, is that more and more people are becoming discouraged with what they're seeing in the church. 
more and more people are finding it difficult to find a home in the church because of all of these things that they see happening. And as you look on, it may be hard to believe that the church, with all of her problems, can even continue to advance. Recently, I just read about Russell Moore, um, very major, major Christian um, leader um, in, in, the, in American Christianity, and also a leader within the Southern Baptist Convention. And, and, and he recently denou- he, he denounced his membership to the, to the Southern Baptist Convention, that denomination. He left it. And it's because some pretty disgraceful instances of racism and sexual abuse. And his, he actually wrote some letters to leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention and other people. And these, lead, these, I mean, letters, these letters were actually leaked. And when you read these letters, you read of just some really disgraceful, just, just terrible instances of racism and of sexual abuse that have been covered up. And as this man tried to point it out, from within the church, not outside the church, Christian leaders were, were threatening this man against his life threatening him to silence if they weren't just flat out ignoring him. And so for that reason, he had to leave, and kudos to him for moving on. But when we read letters like this, brothers and sisters, and when we consider, unfortunately, that experiences like Russell Moore's experience is not uncommon in the church, it's no wonder that people are disappointed in the church. It's no wonder that people are looking at the church and trying to figure out, how can I find a home there? Or even once more, how is that thing going to continue to exist? Well, brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the church will continue to exist because Jesus promised that it will. Jesus promised that the kingdom would go forth, his church would go forth, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And not only will the church survive all of these attacks against her, but if history is any indication, she will be stronger and she will flourish all the more because of them. We may look and we may be discouraged. We may look and we may not know how it's going to happen, but Jesus is not taken by surprise. Jesus is not shaken. Jesus knows it's going to continue. Now, let me say this. This may be hard for you to hear. Let me tell you this. America might not survive all of this. Right? Nationalism and traditionalism and liberalism and conservatism and all the other isms out there might not survive this. But the kingdom will go on. The kingdom will flourish. And that's our first lesson from this. Jesus wants us to know that the kingdom will go forth. The second lesson is is this. The final state or the end, the culmination of Jesus' kingdom will eclipse its humble beginning. Right? Like the mustard seed, that small seed that begins this beautiful tree that is the church. Right? The beginning of the church was really small, even unnoticeable. Uh, some of the things that we tend to we, we tend to forget about the beginning of the church is this man that Jesus took twelve men, not just any men. These men were uneducated men, poor men, even insignificant men. And can you under, can you believe that with these twelve men, Jesus turned the world upside down? 
And what Jesus has prophesied through these parables, through this parable of the mustard seed, has come to be. All over the world, people from all nationalities and races and cultural backgrounds, even from different religious backgrounds, are coming to follow Jesus. And here's the thing. A number of these people are actually doing it under great threat to even their personal well-being and their life. The church has greatly transcended her humble Jewish beginnings, and this is a fact. This is not conjecture. This is a fact. The church has greatly, as Pastor Drew would say, outpunted the coverage. The church continues to grow. And here's the final lesson we get from this passage, brothers and sisters, that Jesus communicates the word of the kingdom in ways that we can understand. The purpose of the parables were to offer greater clarity and understanding of the kingdom of God and not less. Not less. In verse 33, at the end of the parables, Mark tells us that with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. But I like the way the Message Bible puts it, Eugene Peterson's commentary version of the Bible. It says, it says, with many stories like these, he presented his message to them, fitting the stories to their experience and maturity. In other words, Jesus used parables as a way to tailor the great truths of God to the understanding of the people to whom he was speaking. Right? Jesus worked really hard to be relatable to his people. And what's important to see here when Mark makes this transition from speaking about seeds and he actually says he spoke the word or message to them. Mark wants us to know that Jesus spoke the parables in order to make the communication of God himself, the communication of his character and his story to people as clear and relatable as possible. And it is essentially this Making the communication of God, his character, and his story to people, making that communication clear, that is the foundation, the primary purpose of the Bibles that we have. Right? When the people who wrote the Bible, the apostles and Old Testament prophets and the other men who faithfully wrote the Bible, when they sat down to pen what God was, say, pen what God was saying to them, their goal, their desire was to make who God is and what he desires from us as clear as possible. That's what they were hoping to do. Clarity in communicating the mind, character, and story of God was their primary aim and is the primary aim of the Bible. But this doesn't mean that everything in the Bible is easy to understand. That's not what it means. I've been studying the Bible now, um, and some of you... I'm always amazed um, that I'm an adult because I still feel so young, especially when I'm talking to, to older people and especially when I'm talking to them as if I know what I'm talking about, you know. And so I say, I say all that to say that I'm about to say a number that may seem really small to some of you. Forgive me for that. But I've been studying the Bible for a whopping 20 years now, right? Some say, I got shoes older than you, boy. Maybe you do, but it's all good. <laughs> But I've been studying the Bible for 20 years, and 14 of those years have actually been in formal Christian education, learning from people who themselves are considered experts in the field of the Bible. Can I tell you something? There are still large portions of the Bible that I still don't quite understand what's going on. There are still parts of the Bible that I still scratch my head and I'm not sure what's going on. But this doesn't mean 
that the Bible itself is unclear. All it speaks to is the vastness of the mind of God, the vastness of who he is, and my limited ability to understand what he's communicating from time to time. The Bible isn't unclear. We're just limited. And it takes a tremendous amount of work and a tremendous amount of grace for us to overcome our limitations to understand what God is saying to us through the word. But I heard something from a pastor friend not too long ago, and I want to encourage you guys with this as well. He said that he would tell his children simply this. He would say, hey, listen, just read your Bible. Just read something from your Bible every day. Right? Just read a little something. And when you read, look for something new. Look for something you hadn't seen before, something you don't quite understand, just something that hits you. And then I want you to take that thing and I just want you to chew on it the rest of the week or the rest of the day. Just chew on it, pray about it, let the Lord continue to work that thing in you, make, make sense of it. And just continue to, 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 to revel in the moments of clarity that you have. And as you continue to read, watch Jesus, watch God, the Holy Spirit at work in us, continue to piece together those moments of clarity as we continue to understand more and more about the Lord, more and more of his word, and more and more of what he desires from us and from our lives. Don't overwhelm yourself or yourselves with trying to be a Bible scholar from day one. You know, I think about reading the Bible often as working out, right? I used to train people uh, professionally. You might not be able to tell, but I did it. <laughs> and um, when I would train uh, people, I, I mean, you probably, what kind of training? Can't tell. I meant physical training, like fitness training. And one of the things that was always probably the biggest uh, hurdle or the biggest actually roadblock to people continuing is that from day one, they tried to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. From day one, they tried to put, uh, you know, 10,000 pounds on the bar or run three miles and all of that. And typically when they did that, they would break something or hurt something. And then that would be the end of their fitness journey. Right. Day one. And I think sometimes that's how we approach the studying of the scripture. Right. From day one, we try to be the pastor or we try to be the biblical scholar or we try to be the author or something. And we get in. It's so it's just it, it just overwhelms you. And then you don't read anymore. Can I just encourage you if you haven't been reading the Bible or if you become complacent with reading the scripture, please, the pressure is off. Just read. Just pray and ask the Lord to revive a desire for you in the scriptures. Just, just pray and ask the Lord to grant you greater clarity. Come to church, hear sermons, ask questions, shoot me an email. I love to talk to you about the word of God. Come to Bible study on Wednesday night. Just grow. Just start where you are. Don't overwhelm yourself. God desires for us to know him through his word, and that's why men have gone through great pains to write the mind of God for us. And so the three lessons we get from this passage are simply this. The kingdom cannot be stopped. The kingdom will go forth. It will flourish. Secondly, the kingdom will be greater than its humble beginnings. And lastly, Jesus speaks in ways that we can understand. And here are the practical applications for us today. Here's why, how, why this matters and how it works for us in our lives. And I want us, again, to consider, consider these things not just individually, not just as Kyleen and Linda and Peter. I want us to consider this as Redeemer. Redeemer, how can we embody 
what Jesus is saying to us through this passage. And the first thing is this. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Commit to both sharing truth and doing good. That sounds oversimplified, right? Um, recently, in the past recent years, there's been this movement to what people have called gospel-centered or gospel-centric ministry. How many of you heard that? Gospel-centric ministry, right? And typically the idea, right, it, it sounds good on paper, but the way it worked itself out, unfortunately, for a lot of people who propose this gospel-centric or gospel-centered idea is that we don't really need to do anything. Right. All we need to do is preach the gospel to everything that arises. Right. So, for example, there's a serial killer on our loose. Right. What we need to do is catch him and preach the gospel to him. That'll fix it. Right. Or there's somebody among us who's hurting. They're struggling with the difficulty of life. They need help. So what do we do? Let's just preach the gospel to them. Somebody's poor. They're in need. What do we do? Let's just preach the gospel to them. And essentially the way it worked itself out was just that we would say good things, we would, we would preach good things, but we wouldn't really do good things. And the problem with that and with calling it gospel-centric or gospel-centered, I mean Jesus-centered or gospel-centered ministry is the fact that it's not what Jesus did because Jesus came both teaching good as well as doing good. The gospel is a both end. The gospel is a matter of preaching the good news of Christ and then bringing, right, tangibly the good news to people, doing good things for people. And so for us to do one without the other is ultimately to do damage to the gospel to itself. We must preach good and we must also do good. And this also means, brothers and sisters, though, that we have to be committed to truth in all of our doing. There's a lot of people, a lot of churches, we talk about getting discouraged or dismayed with the church, have decided to throw truth out of the window just so that we can do good. It's a both and, brothers and sisters. We have to hold dearly to truth and we have to hold dearly to working and, and loving and being merciful and kind and all those things. And they are not opposed to each other. I apologize for those examples that showed us that they were opposed to each other, but they were not. They weren't in Jesus. To love mercy and to do justice goes hand in hand with preaching truth. We must do both. And Redeemer, my prayer for us is that we continue. Let me say something to you. You guys have three pastors here. You have three pastors. You have two other elders. You have a worship director. You have, a, you have an outreach director. You have all of these things. My prayer, brothers and sisters, is that if one day not one of us could stand up, that anybody in this church who would call Redeemer home could stand up and continue to carry on the bastion of truth and goodness that we have been preaching all these several, these several years. My prayer is that we be a church where, as they say, one monkey don't stop, no show. Where we are so committed to being a people of truth and loving others that it does not stop, no matter what may come against us. What happens if preaching Jesus becomes illegal? I pray that we keep preaching him. What happens if, if, the th if danger comes knocking on our door because we won't stop preaching Jesus? I pray that we keep preaching him. 
Keep preaching the truth. Keep loving in accord with the gospel. The second thing is this, brothers and sisters. We need to be hospitable. People should be able to find a home among us. At the end of that parable of the mustard seed, Jesus says that the tree grows and birds are able to come and perch in its shade, find nesting in its shade. And that simply speaks to the fact that the kingdom is a place where people should be able to come and find comfort and find support, find solace, find encouragement. And what's cool about the church, the early church, is that this is what was revolutionary about the early church. When the church came about, there was no other institution, no other group of people that was open to accepting anybody. No matter what your financial background was, your cultural background was, your race was, your social status, the church was open to everybody. Every and anybody who came in faith could find a home in the early church. And brothers and sisters, we have to continue to be a home. We have to continue to be a home. We have to make great strides to make sure that we, that people can come and be at home here. And the last application for us is this, friends. We have to be relatable. We have to be relatable. Follow Jesus' example and seek to relate to people in ways that suit them. Funny story. When I was... Uh, in college, playing basketball in college, we were playing in a tournament in Indiana. And with all of our tournaments that we would play across the country, we would always do some kind of community service project. And this particular project was uh, us going to a nursing home, an an elderly folks home. And when we went, there was a table with an older black gentleman and uh, he had hearing aids. And me and a couple of my teammates went over to him to just chat with him. And so while I was talking to him, I kind of led the charge talking, and he just kept pointing to his ears and saying, you know, I can't hear you. And so I talked louder, and I talked louder to the point where I was literally screaming at this man in the middle of this nursing home. I'm screaming at him, and I'm noticing that my teammates are talking to him in a very normal voice, and he's tracking. But the more I'm screaming at him, the more he's, like, looking down and looking away and looking strange. And I'm like, well, maybe I need to speak louder. So I'm speaking even louder, and I'm really yelling at this guy at the top of my voice. And um, my teammate looks at me and he goes, he goes, Leon, you, you don't need to talk so loud. He can hear you. I said, well, obviously he can't because he keeps telling me he can't hear me. And so that's why I'm talking so loud. And so my teammate goes over to him and says, sir, in a very normal voice, sir, can you hear him? And the man goes, yeah, I can hear him just fine. I don't know why he's screaming at me. And the point of that story and how it relates to this sermon, brothers and sisters, is that sometimes we assume that people are not hearing us as a church because we're not screaming loud enough, when the truth is we're just not speaking in a way that they can understand. We're just not speaking to them in a way that that they can understand. We're not speaking to them in their level. And the primary reason why Jesus told parables was so that he could speak to the people on their level so that they can thoughtfully consider and prayerfully believe the truth of the gospel and receive the seeds of the kingdom. It's important for us to strive to be as relatable as we possibly can to the people we hope to reach with the truth of the the gospel. And that means from time to time we may have to change the way we do things. From time to time you may have to get in a pulpit with a pink shirt and pink Air Force Ones. Right? From time to time, we may have to sing some more old school gospel hymns. 
And we just have to be flexible. We have to be flexible. If indeed it's helping us reach others with the truth of the gospel, we just have to be flexible. And just make sure that our goal in all that we do is loving others and continuing to sow the seeds of the kingdom. And so, brothers and sisters, I want us to keep in mind the points of this sermon this morning, that the kingdom of heaven will go forth. Nothing will stop it. Be not afraid. Jesus has promised that he is building his church and not even the gates of hell will prosper against it. The kingdom will continue to grow and outshine. It will eclipse its beginning. And Jesus continues to speak to us and wants us to speak to others in a way that they can understand. Amen? Let's pray together, friends. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for your mercy and using me to preach it. And I just pray, Lord, in the hearts and minds of every person present here, that you would grant the clarity of understanding and that you would grant effectiveness in changing us and growing us up to love you and to trust you and to live for you in the ways that you call us. But also, Lord God, to be the vehicle of your kingdom to this watching and dying world that you desire us to be. We give you all the glory and all the honor because you are worthy, O most holy God. 